Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 as we are moving gradually toward the close of this great sermon. It's not so much a letter like other New Testament letters. It's not structured that way. Most scholars believe that it is a sermon. And the section we're looking at today would be sort of the climax or the apex or the high point of this message. And in many ways brings together a lot of the themes that the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to communicate to his first century audience who is undergoing severe difficulty. Uh, so severe that many are thinking of turning their backs on Jesus and walking away. And so what you have today is probably the rhetorical or high point of the entire uh, sermon we call the book of Hebrews. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading about a kingdom that cannot be shaken in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, it was so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused to him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray now for the gracious ministry of your Spirit. We pray that he would empower the preacher to preach the Word with boldness and confidence, not in himself, but in you. And we pray that the hearers would be given the ability to receive and respond to the Word of God, that they would be enabled to see the beauty of the truth and to want it and desire it and to want it to be a part of their lives and to want it to produce fruit in them. And we pray that you would be glorified by all that is said. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we have been saying over and over in this series of messages in the book of Hebrews, that this book is written to people who have been shaken by life. The problems and the difficulties and the sufferings and the persecution have just shaken this little church to the core. Every week we have seen how the Hebrews writer is trying to help his readers find ways to face the brutalities of life. How can they face it? How can they face life without melting down? 
How can they stand solid when everything around them is shaking and falling apart? And so today we get to the place that is, in a sense, the rhetorical climax of the book. That is the the argument the book is making to us. Many people believe, and I'm one of them, that the book of Hebrews, and we said this earlier, is not really a letter as much as it is a sermon. And it's really the only complete early Christian sermon we have. And in that case, the climax of the sermon is found in these verses. Because chapter 13 pretty much has to do with practical applications about what to do about what Hebrews means. But this particular passage tells us here's how we can live in 2019 an unshakable life. In an unstable world, in a world that is always changing and chaotic, in which tumult is the norm, here's how we can live an unshakable life. And so we're going to do that as we look at three things in this passage. I have it for you in the bulletin, what you have not come to, and I would call that a shakable life. Number two, what you have come to, I would call that an unshakable life. And then what to do about what this means. How do we get this? How do we make it our own? How do we appropriate it? So that's what we're talking about as we look at this glorious passage. Probably one of my favorite sections in the entire book. And so verses 18 to 21 are talking about a shakable life. And one of the keys to understanding this passage, in fact, uh, is the fact that in both verse 18 and verse 22 start with the very same verb and that verb is the verb come you have not come verse 18 says verse 22 says you have come and there are a whole lot of words in the original Greek that you could use to translate the word come but this word is not one that simply means to move from one geographic location to another this is a word with very deep religious and spiritual meaning It refers to our fundamental spiritual approach to God and to life. Everyone has your fundamental spiritual approach to God and to life. Everybody has one. And I can get it by asking you some questions like this. How do you face life? How do you face the world? How do you face your troubles? If someone questions you or criticizes you, how do you face them? How do you face yourself in the mirror in the morning? If there's a God, and let's assume there is, we do, and he were to appear and call you at this moment to account, how would you face that? What would you refer to? What would you talk about? And the answer to all those questions in almost every case, because it's the default mode of the human heart, is always to say to ourselves, to critics, and to the world, and to God, now listen carefully, you hear this all the time, I have tried my best. That's how everybody almost answers that question. In those words or in other words, I have tried my absolute best. I determined what the standards were, at least my standards were. I decided how human beings should live in this world. I know I'm not perfect, but I have tried my best. I'm better than a lot of people. I've actually done, given all things and all circumstances and uh, everything within and around me, I've actually done a pretty good job. 
I think it was Emil Bruner who once said that 98% of the people in the world think they're good, but occasionally they do something wrong. And that is not the Bible's assessment of the problem at all. But that's what most people think. And that's basically how people face life and how they face themselves and how they face each other. I have tried my best. Everybody's culture and generation is different. If you're young, let's say you're a postmodern person, and you say, look, I'm a free-spirited person. I'm a very open-minded person. I live and I let live, and that's all you can ask from me. That's all you can ask from a person. But I do that, and I've tried to do my best. Or maybe you're talking to an ambitious baby boomer type. I'm a baby boomer. And you say, I have tried to accomplish things in my life. Here are my vocational accomplishments. Here's the great career I have. Here are the great causes I have given to. Here are the things that I have done with my life. And if you're a more traditional and say older person, you might say, well, I've tried my best to live according to the high moral standards and to care for my family, to be a good family man or family woman, and so on. And so that's how most people respond to this question. Yet when it comes down to it, Everybody is saying, I'm not perfect, but I uh, set what I decided what a human being should do, and I've tried my best. I really have. I've been better than an awful lot of other people. I haven't done a, a bad job. I'm really a pretty good person. And I want to say to you this morning unequivocally, no, you're not. You are not. No way. And you have no clue if you think that. You are not, you have not done a very good job. Um, you said, I'm better than an awful lot of people. I haven't done a bad job. I'm really a pretty good person. No, you're not. That is a sham. That is a lie. You are not. Uh, and I know that for some people that's hard to hear. But the biblical analysis says, you have not tried your best. You have not even come close to trying your best. Let me speak personally here. Let me talk about me and let you listen in on it. Who else could speak for me other than me? So let me speak for myself. If you do a little reflection on basic ethical principles, uh, you will see it is a sham the way we tell ourselves that we're really pretty good. We've tried our best. We're really fairly good people. Just take the golden rule, for example. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I will just say this about myself. There has never been a day in my life in which I have made it through the day in which I have worked as hard at understanding other people as I want them to work understanding me. I haven't even come close. I want people to be understanding. Why don't they understand me? I don't work nearly as hard at understanding other people as I want them to be understanding of me. I don't meet the needs of other people with the eagerness and the promptness and the fastidiousness and the energy with which I want other people to meet my needs. I don't even come close. I don't come close. It's a sham to say. It is a sham to say, you know, I'm not perfect, but I pretty much live up to my standards. Nobody does. Nobody comes close at all. Nobody. And that's why our lives are so shakable. That's why we're so frail. That's why we can't maintain and keep it together without melting down. 
It is a sham to say, you know, I'm not perfect, but I pretty much live up to my standards. We're all moral failures. Everybody is a moral failure. And the shamness of the way in which we look at ourselves and the way in which we face life and face these things and the shamness of this spiritual approach is revealed in this famous incident at Mount Sinai in verses 18 through 21. And he's describing the famous encounter of the Israelites with God. And God came down on Mount Sinai and his presence came down on, at Mount Sinai. And uh, he gave the Ten Commandments. And the people got close. And they drew near because here is God. But guess what? As they drew near, they didn't have anything like a close, uh, uh, a close, warm, fuzzy, cozy, toasty experience where they heard angel wings flapping and had holy goosebumps running all over them. That was not their experience at Mount Sinai. They were shattered. They were absolutely shattered. They were shaken to the core. They were as shaken as the mountain. They were shaking by the presence of God, by the voice of God. And the Hebrews writer here with wonderful eloquence says the following. He says that they, um, they uh, well, what he really does in this passage is he sort of whacks us with seven negative experiences and images uh, that they experienced here. They felt as shaken by the mountain. They felt the presence of God and they were shaken by the voice of God and so with great rhetorical skill he waxes with seven negative images to get across how shattering and devastating the experience of nearness to God was for the Israelites. These are the people he had taken out of bondage in Egypt. These are the people he delivered across the Red Sea. These are the people uh, who he redeemed by destroying the Egyptian army pursuing him. These are the people that he redeemed in order to bring them to the mountain to worship. And the minute they got there, they could not handle it. They could not face it. It was overwhelming. It says, you have not come what they came to, which was a mountain burning with fire and darkness and gloom and a storm and a trumpet blast and a voice that was so overwhelming they couldn't bear it. When God began to speak to them, they didn't say, wow, it's the voice of God. High five. That is not what they did. That's not what anybody does with the real God. You know what they did? When God began to speak to them, they said, stop. Stop talking. We can't take it. Every place the presence of God comes, close, comes into a building, comes into a space, or comes on a mountain, it is always fatal to go near. Moses is shaking with fear. He's trembling. It was a horrible experience to get near to God. And why would this be? Well, if you want to understand why it's so shattering and shaking to get near the presence of God, let me give you an illustration, I hope, that will give you a gist of it. I once read an article about an administrator of an elite university in this country. It was one of the top ones, an Ivy League school. And he said, you know, you have no idea on elite university campuses the enormous pressure there is from the students, especially on the teachers but also on the administrators. There's a tremendous amount of pressure from the students to do grade inflation. Everybody wants an A. Everybody wants an A. 
And here's the reason why. You have to realize the kids who get into these top universities, they've always gotten A's their whole life. They've always been the smartest people in the class. But here's the issue. It's not simply that they are the smartest and that they get straight A's. Being smart and getting straight A's and being the top student is how they face life. It's how they face themselves. It's how they face others. It's how they build their identity. You have to realize it's not just that they're smart. Being smart is how they know they are somebody important. It is their foundation upon which they build their whole life. But the administrator said, here's the problem. When you get several thousand people who only ever got A's in the same classes, somebody's got to get a B. And somebody's got to get a C. And so many of the kids melt down if they make a B. Don't you hate that person? I was always around that person. The person who, I, who ruined the curve. We always wanted to take them out and uh, address that. <laughs> but some kid makes a B. They utterly melt down. They go ballistic. And here's the reason why. It's the foundation of your life. If it is, I'm the smartest person in the room. Then they get into the presence of smarter people. It's shattering. It's shaking. And when we get into the presence of Almighty God, when we get into his presence the way we are, which is to buoy ourselves up, though deep down inside we know it's true, basically, consciously, we think we're pretty good people. We perform well. We've done very well in our family. We've tried very hard. We're moral people. We've worked hard. We're pretty good. We're all right. We're not perfect, but we're all right. And when you get into the presence of God, that all falls apart. It shatters. And you're undone. You're undone. Every single person in the Bible, who gets near God, shatters and explodes. At the end of the book of Job, Job gets in the presence of God and he says, I despise myself. I throw myself to the ground in dust and ashes and I repent. When Peter gets near the Lord after uh, um, Jesus calmed the storm, he looks at the Lord and says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He doesn't say, oh, it's great to be in your presence. He says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. When Isaiah, the prophet, experiences the presence of God in Isaiah 6, and when he sees the Lord high and lifted up in the temple and his train filled the temple, he didn't say, how wonderful, I'm in the presence of God, let's dance. No, here's what he said. Woe is me, for I am undone. That word undone means to disintegrate. He is shattered. He falls apart in the presence of Almighty God. He's literally shattered and undone. He's being shaken, shaken to pieces. And you know why? Because the presence of God finally is revealed. It reveals our unbearable lightness of being, movie title, or our unbearable smallness, or our unbearable flawedness, or our unbearable creatureliness. We live in deep denial. We have no way the sliding willingness to admit how selfish we are, how cowardly we are, how much evil we're capable of. We have no idea. We have no clue until we get in the presence of God. You don't like it? 
and you don't believe what I'm telling you, and sometimes I don't believe what I'm telling you, but in the presence of God, it becomes absolutely inescapable. Absolutely inescapable. And that's why we can't live there. That's why we can't be there. That's why we feel shaken to the core and to our roots. Guess what? Most people haven't had an experience of the literal presence of God, have we? Maybe not. But even if you don't have that, the world eventually will do the same thing to you. Because if you build your life on anything here, the world will still shake you down. If you decide, I'm going to build my life on being the smartest, you will go to a school where everybody else is smarter than you, maybe. If you build your life on having money, economic downturns won't just be hard, they will shatter you. If you build your life on finding Mr. Right or Ms. Right or finding this just right person, then rejection won't be hard. It will shatter you. You will be undone. This approach, which everybody has, is a shakable life. We are all headed for a meltdown. We will not be able to stand. Don't you love that the writer of Hebrews says, this is not where you're going. This is what, not what you've come to. There's another way. There's the unshakable life. This is what we have coming. And so I'm so glad the second paragraph is here because if it wasn't, I'd be looking for a bridge somewhere. But I'm so glad that it's here. He said, I don't want you to approach life like that, my readers. I want you to have a better life. You have not come. You're not doing that. That's not the way I want you to live. But you have come. You have a different approach to life. And then he lists sort of a bunch of amazingly over-the-top things that are actually the opposite of the things in the first paragraph. He tells us it is possible to have an unshakable future, to have an unshakable joy, and to have an unshakable identity, and therefore have an unshakable life. You just heard the rest of the sermon in that paragraph. It is possible to have a whole new approach to yourself, a whole new approach to God, a whole new way of facing things that come into your life. What are these three things? Well, first of all, he says it's possible that we have an unshakable future. Another way to put it is we have come to the city the city of the living God, the Mount, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of many names. You have come to the city of the living God. Now, the Bible says the history of the world is basically a tale of two cities. Some have even suggested you could take Bible off the front of the Bible or the spine of the Bible or Holy Bible off the front and write a tale of two cities and you might be just as close to right. The Bible is a book about two cities. And it starts in Genesis and it goes all the way to the book of Revelation. And it climaxes in Revelation. Especially you see this theme in the book of Isaiah. But here's what it's saying. Um, first of all, there is an earthly city. There is an earthly city. Which is called the city of man in the Bible. And the city is the present human order. The present human society. The earthly city is based on the principle of making a name for yourself at the expense of others, the Tower of Babel. It's based on the principle of maximizing personal power and happiness and being number one in all of my priorities. Now, there's another city. 
God is building his city. It's called the city of God, the heavenly city. He's laying the foundation. In the future, there's going to be a new human society. There's going to be a new human order, not based on power, but on peace, not therefore a place of exhaustion and oppression, which our cities are, but a place of joy and justice. Therefore, not a place based on principle, your life to benefit me, but rather a city based on the principle, my life to serve you. Could you imagine what it would be like to live in a city which was operating on that principle in everyday life? Could you imagine that? But that's what's coming. God says that's what's coming. It's definitely coming. It is inevitable. It's guaranteed because when St. Augustine saw Rome sacked around 410 A.D. 410, and everybody was saying, oh my goodness, civilization is over, the barbarians have sacked Rome, Augustine said, now wait a minute. The city of God, the city of God is building, and the one he's building could never be sacked. It can never be bombed, it can't be born, you can't put a burned, you can't put a torch to it. Here it says you have come to it. How could, something the Bible talk, how could something the Bible talks about in the future? In Revelation, we see the city of God merging with the world and becoming the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation. How is it possible that you have come now, present tense, you have come? And the answer is, it is possible for those who have experienced the grace of God to form a community with others who have experienced the grace of God. And when you do that, it is a forerunner, a foretaste, imperfect but genuine of that future city. You can be a citizen of that city. You can taste it. You can have it to some degree now, but only to a degree. Therefore, you can know because of the imperfect but real joy of living in community and being a citizen in community, you can absolutely be sure of an unshakable future. You have an unshakable future. One day... Jerusalem, the city of God, will descend from heaven and come to the new heavens and new earth, and that will be our eternal destiny. And so that is our hope. That is our glory. That is our unshakable future. The second thing we can have is unshakable joy. And because the second thing it says is you have come not just to the city of the living God, but to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. What's that? The presence of God is all about angels. The royal presence of God, the face of God, the thing we're all built for, always has angels as a sign of his presence. For example, when Adam and Eve were... Um, expelled and cast out of the Garden of Eden, the place where God's presence dwelt, they were cast out of God's presence, and when they looked back, what did they see? An angel guarding the door with flaming swords. When Jacob is in the middle of the wilderness and had a dream and had a vision of the very presence of God, he didn't sing Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. No, the stairs came out of heaven, up and down it were angels because the stairway was into the heart of the world. It was the stairway into the heart of the universe, into the very presence of God. It was him coming down, not us climbing up. Angels, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah 6, there were cherubim. 
That's cherubs, plural, I am, cherubim. There were the angels. The angels are over the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of his presence and so on. What is this saying? It is saying that in spite of Mount Sinai experience in which they started to draw near to the presence of God, when we draw near to the presence of God, we immediately experience trauma. It's shattering. Actually, for us, the presence of God is a place of infinite joy. I, don't, I think the biggest lie of the universe is we don't believe that. The presence of God is a source and a place of infinite joy. By the way, joyful assembly in this text is a very unusual Greek word that really means, and get this, an incredibly wild party. That is exactly what it means. And it's very weird for us to use it here. A celebration, a festival, a rejoicing, a wild revelry, revelry, really? So what is it saying? What are we talking about here? Here's what we're talking about. You and I don't get out much, not really. We're bound by time and space. We're here. We spend all of our time in this world, in this space. We don't get out in the rest of the universe, so we don't get out much. We don't know much about what's going on out there, but the Bible gives us some hints. In John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he tells us some incredibly important things to know. First, he, he says, first of all, he says, from the very beginning, from all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were glorifying each other out of love. Listen to that. They were glorifying each other out of love. Now, do you know what that means to glorify someone? It means to serve them. It means to center your life on them. It means to praise them, to adore them, to glorify them. We are told that inside the triune God, inside the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is what they've been doing from all eternity. There was the other orientation within the being of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Son defers and glorifies the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son. On and on they go. Theologians call this perichoresis, dancing around one another probably like the spinning in Ezekiel's passage as he tries to describe it. But you know what that's like. There's nothing better than being in the presence of someone you adore, you utterly adore. You're glorifying them, you're serving them, you're praising them. You don't have to work it up. You're loving them, you're sending everything on them. They're doing the same thing to you. That is heaven. Not demanding, not saying, how come you aren't giving me what I need? You're glorifying them. They're glorifying you. That's heaven. You know, you can't even love a beautiful landscape or a piece of music without praising it. We're just made to do that. You go grab somebody and you say to them, listen to this. Listen to this. You have to praise it. You have to glorify it. You have to enjoy it. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit know the absolute, infinite, cosmic joy of unselfish relationships. In that case, why did God create us? Glad you asked, because Jonathan Edwards told us in a book called A Dissertation Concerning the End for Which God Created the World. The title's a lot easier to read than the book. But he plumbs the depths of this question. He says, wait a minute, why would God create the world? 
If God was unipersonal, if God had just one personality, then he wouldn't know the joy of loving relationships, of unselfishness, glorifying loving relationships. He wouldn't know the joy till he created angels, human beings, and other persons. Since God is triune, he is a community, because he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then he already has incredible joy, infinite joy. So why create us? The answer is he couldn't have created us to get infinite joy. He must have created us to spread it, not to get it, but to give it to us. Do you know that's what God wants you to have? That, that the love in his heart will not let him rest until he gives it to us? In, in, in other words, every being, every part of the universe in its own way. Psalm 19 tells us, every part of the created universe glorifies God. Every part of every star, every planet, everything. We were all created, everything created to stand before God and glorify God and obey God and give everything, all of your love to God and have Him love and honor you. That is what you were made for. That is what you were built, built for. And nothing else will satisfy you because that's how you're wired. Guess what? Everything in the universe knows that but us. The rest of the universe out there is one incredible party one unbelievable party. Everything out there, C.S. Lewis calls it the dance. Everything out there is just a joyful dance before the throne of God, except for us because, you see, a lie came into our hearts in the Garden of Eden, and it's still there. And do you know what that lie is? Here's the lie. If you lose control, you won't be happy. If you live unconditionally for God's will instead of your own will, you won't be happy. If you unconditionally live for God's glory instead of your glory, you won't be happy. And as a result, we're holding on. We're holding on to the control of our lives. We're holding on to the throne of our lives. And as a result, we live in a very miserable little corner of the universe. And this is what this is telling us. This is saying all of reality is an ocean of joy and we're just stuck in a tiny little speck of darkness, one tiny little speck of the universe that's filled with darkness, unhappiness, brokenness. Everything around us is an ocean of joy. But get this, the shadows of the world will not be able to keep that joy out forever. Someday it's going to break in. But it says here we have to come to it. And when it says you have come to it, it must mean this. It's possible to get some of this now. It must be possible to get some sense of God's love in your heart. Some sense of God's glory in your mind. Not just an abstract concept, but a knowing that is actually sensing some of this. It must be possible to at least get a drop of this incredible wine on your tongue. Even a drop will send you to the moon. It will give you a joy that will never go out, that will never get you through, or that, that will never go out and will get you through. So there's an unshakable future possible for you to live now on the basis of the shaking of God. There's an unshakable joy, which is possible now. And finally, there is an unshakable identity. 
Because the third thing it says here is you have not come, come not only to the city of the living God, you have come to the angels in joyful assembly. You have come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. What is that? That is unshakable identity. That's who you are. Jesus in Luke chapter 10 sends his disciples out and he gives them power to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. And they go out and they have a wonderful time. And when they come back, they're excited, they're amped up, they're pumped. They're really pumped up and they say, Lord, it worked. Even the demons are subject to us. They must have gotten together and said, did you see that demon yelling and screaming with fire all over his hair and all that? I just did that. So they come back and they're excited. And they say to Jesus, even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus gets very serious. And he says this, rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, but what? that your names are written in heaven before the foundation of the earth. Your names are written in heaven. That's who you are. You are not who you are by what you do. You are who you are by what God has done for you. So they come back. They're excited. And Jesus says, why does he say that what's he doing he's really serious and he says don't get a name like that don't get a sense that you're somebody like that see what the disciples were saying we can cast out demons we have power we're somebody now I know I'm a somebody Jesus is saying that's a dead end don't dare get your sense of somebodiness like that don't say, I make six figures. I'm not even out of my 20s. I am somebody. Don't say, I made partner before I was 35. I am somebody. I have a PhD from this leading institution. I am somebody. I'm smart. I'm somebody. I have a supermodel wife. I'm a wife who still looks like a supermodel. See, I'm somebody. Jesus says that is a dead end. That's a dead end because next week you're not going to look like a supermodel anymore. Or eventually, you certainly won't. You won't be on top. Maybe next week, the demons won't fly out when you move your little finger. Don't you dare try to build your identity on stuff that's up and down and in and out. Don't get your sense of being somebody like that. Your names are written in heaven. You are members of the church of the firstborn. What's that? In ancient times, we know the firstborn got the whole inheritance. Families had a certain amount of wealth. They wanted to keep their status, their standing in society. So the way they did this was not to divide up their money equally among all the children. The firstborn virtually got all of it, always, guaranteed. It didn't matter how they lived. They didn't have to go out and work really hard. In order to become rich, they were rich. They were trust fund babies. This said it is possible not to be hoping if I really live a good life, I really, really try hard, I do all that, then I really feel like I'm somebody. No, it's possible to have your names written in heaven, to be firstborn, to have your inheritance guaranteed, to be in the family of God, to be absolutely accepted by God. It is possible to have your identity based on something like this, something unshakable, a whole new identity structure. So who are we? Apart from this, I have no idea. I don't know who I am. You don't know who you are. And here's why. 
you know, you are an accumulation of what everybody's ever said about you. Your father, your mother, your siblings, your friends, your teacher, your coaches, your bosses, your employees. Everybody has said all kinds of stuff about you in your life over the years. And there are a lot of things people have said that you absolutely hope is true. And there are a whole lot of things that people have said that you hope isn't true. But you're afraid it is. They all conflict. You don't really know you are. This has the power to overturn the accumulated verdicts that have been passed upon you. This has the power to reprogram your image. This is, has a power to heal the deepest wounds that have been done to you throughout your life, through your own failures, your own flaws, and what everybody else has ever done to you, any abuse, any criticism. This is the possibility of an unshakable identity. Rejoice. Not that you can do this, 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 or this, but that your name is written in heaven. You have come to that. Now, finally, how do we get it? How do we make this our own? How is it possible to get this? And he answers that really in the middle of this paragraph. He says, you have come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, a joyful assembly, angels and angels, city of the living God, Mount Zion, and to God the judge. That doesn't make much sense, does it? It doesn't make much sense because that doesn't sound like good news, does it? Why would God the judge ever be good news to us? How could the judge of the all the earth be a source of unshakable joy, unshakable identity, and an unshakable future. How can that be? In fact, this entire passage is absolutely about the judgment of God. Do you know what the shaking is? The shaking is God's judgment. The reason Isaiah felt like his life was coming apart was he felt he was being judged, and he was. See, when you shake something to see how solid it is, it actually says God shakes things to see whether there's anything that is eternal there, whether there's anything that is ultimate there, whether there's anything that is lasting there. And the trouble is we know that if God shakes us, there won't be anything left. We can't bear the sifting of God. We can't bear under the shaking of God. Well, how do we get all these great things? The answer is Jesus, the mediator of the covenant. Do you know what happened to Jesus when he was on the cross? Matthew 27, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land, and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he cried out in a loud voice and he gave up his spirit, at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split, there was an earthquake. Was it just special effects? Was it just a dramatic crucifixion? Earthquake, darkness, gloom, rocks split. It was Mount Sinai all over again. What? It's Mount Sinai all over again. What happened? Jesus Christ was being judged. Jesus Christ was being shaken. Jesus Christ was getting the shaking we deserved. When people say, aren't all religions the same? No, they are not. Every other religion says, here's the standards, live up to them. We spend all of our lives insecurely trying to desperately assure ourselves that we're pretty good and we're living up to standards. Here's why. Here's the only religion that says the judge of all the earth came down to bear judgment. 
Not to bring it, but to bear it. He'll bring it next time, but he came to bring it. Not to bring it, but to bear it. The maker of all the earth came down onto the cross and he was unmade. He was shaken so that you can be unshakable. He was shaken so now that the curtain of the temple is ripped. The presence of God for which you were built. The thing you're looking for in everything you're looking for. The thing you're looking for in all your romance and all your work and all your desire for achievement. In every vacation, in every great piece of music that sends you to the moon. You'll never find them there because they're pointing to it they're not it it's the presence of God it's the face of God and that's what your heart longs for and that's what Jesus got for you now because of what Jesus has done the thing that used to be fatal can come into your life and it won't consume you it won't destroy you when it comes into your life through the grace of Jesus Christ it only consumes the flaws it consumes the parts of you that need to go away you know what Jesus Christ at one point had the audacity to say he was talking to Nathaniel in John chapter 1 and he said I saw you under the fig tree and Nathaniel said, oh my goodness, how did you know about the fig tree? You must be the son of David. You must be the Messiah. Jesus says, you think that's something? You will see angels ascend and descend on the Son of Man. Through me, you get in. You get in. You get in all the way. C.S. Lewis, who I'm learning to enjoy more, mostly because my wife enjoys him, and she talks to me a lot about him, and I said, well, I better read the guy. He said, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of the real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache then we have identity then we have joy we have a future that will never be shaken no matter what happens here we don't have to be afraid on judgment day the day in which not only the earth but the heavens and everything else will be shaken according to the book of revelation we have nothing to fear because jesus has already been shaken for us so that we can have a kingdom that cannot be shaken in worship to the degree out of gratitude for this grace we experience his presence and reverence and all he comes into our lives he consumes the things that are bad consumes the things that are holding us back and fulfills that deep longing in Christ you have come to all of this and it's yours and underneath everything you think in this life is going to make you happy and full of joy and will lift you up beyond measure and transcend all things is really the ache in your soul for the presence of God. That's what you want. That's what I want. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. And because it is truth, it exposes us, it unveils, it reveals, it, it brings light to, it shows us the shamness of our lives. The way in which we have mapped out our own destiny, our own basic principles of life and think that we're pretty good people doing a pretty good job. 
And we're, we're, we're sobered today to hear that that only sets us up for a shaking in the future that none of us would ever want to know. But we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have an unshakable future. We have a, an unshakable joy. We have an unshakable identity. And I pray that people would come to Jesus today. We're all weak. We're all frail. We're all tired. And we're all scared to face it. And we pray that you would give us the grace to face it. And the heart to run to Jesus knowing that he has said to us, come all of you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. We know that the true rest is the aching in our soul to be in your presence, where true joy and love are. Now, fathers, we continue to worship you. May we give as people who have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the festal gathering of angels, the church of the firstborn. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.